Well, summer slipped us underneath her tongue. Our days and nights are perfumed with obsession. Half of my wardrobe is on your bedroom floor. Use our eyes, throw our hands overboard. I am your. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. Today, I'm talking about Kate Chopin's short story, A Respectable Woman, which was originally published in Vogue in 1894, but can be found online at AmericanLiterature.com and a couple other ones. Just Google it. I mean, whatever. Anyway, it's uh, spelled C-H-O-P-I-N, Chopin, but it's, pr or sh it's, ooh, it's pronounced Chopin. Uh, I think I butchered that in the last episode. It's French. And uh, disclaimer, I'm going to butcher some more French names in this episode. Okay, let's get started. The first thing I want to talk about is the narrative voice, because it stuck out to me. And honestly, I don't have to justify myself to you. Whatever. Anyway, this story is an example of third-person limited narration, which is to say that the narrator is distinct from the story. You know, they uses he, she, they, but follows one character very closely, and you, can, you as the reader, can only know that one character's thoughts or feelings. Um, and that's kind of the main character. This is the first third-person limited piece I've actually read in a while, and definitely the first time I've discussed it on the podcast. The thing that makes it so interesting to me is that it blends distance and specificity with a, a character. Let me explain that. First, uh, excuse me, third person is inherently more distant than first person, and it removes the reader from the story. Uh, you know, we get it through an unknown narrator, through like a middleman. So it's distant in that sense, but at the same time, because it follows one person so closely and exclusively, we get to know that person way better than any of the others. And this portrayal isn't veiled by the possibility of some unreliable perception, like you get with first-person narration. Um, so it's detailed but objective voice. So as a reader, even though you're getting it you know, in third person, you feel really connected with that main character. I guess you can think of it is like a very effective and secretive stalker or like a guardian angel, whatever floats your boat. Anyway, Chopin uses this intimate objectivity uh, and is actually, it's pretty funny a couple times and this is kind of a tangent, but whatever. Um, here's here's a quote, uh, it's about Gouvernail, uh, Gouvernail, I don't know French again. Um, anyway, quote, he did not care to fish and displayed no eagerness to go out and kill grosbecks uh, or grosbeaks, uh, end quote. Anyway, um, I thought it was funny because it totally sounds like a nature documentary. If you just read it in like Sir David Attenborough's voice, uh, you can totally, it's, you know, it's like an anthropology, like a field guide or something. Uh, and a little bit, that's just the style of the prose, but also the way that the narrator's describing the character. It just, yeah, that objectivity sounds kind of funny. Okay, tangent over. Anyway, um, what really stuck out about this piece in particular and the use of third person limited was the times when I felt that the third person narration thinned and Baroda, Miss Baroda's voice came through much more directly. Ah, directly, excuse me. To me, this comes out best in these little appositive asides, things like injecting indeed or perhaps into a sentence. You can easily hear Mrs. Bardoa, uh, Baroda, damn it, I keep doing that. Um, 
Anyway, you can easily hear her saying like, indeed, I am a respectable woman or something like that. Um, and with third person limited, we do get to know the main character's thoughts, but they're usually noted with he felt or she thought, you know, there's some indicator there. And these appositives, they could very well be her thoughts just without the indicator, but then she's also kind of a narrator in her own right. Ooh, I just thought of this, so it might be stupid. Uh, what if Broda is the narrator and she's trying to distance herself from her shameful attraction? Huh, I don't know. You know what? I'll make that this week's text response. So what do you think? Is uh, is she doing that? Text me. I think that'll be, I don't know, be pretty cool. Uh, anyway, the, the 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 kind of malleability of the narrative and the way that it kind of thins uh, so that you can hear the character's voice coming through, I think is just really cool. Another thing about the positives uh, that another thing that they could provide is this really brief, super concise, you know, just one word uh, editorial remarks, and they can be sarcastic or genuine or, I guess, insistent be the word. Um, okay, so uh, when Baroda and Gouvernail are at the oak tree, and she said, uh, the narrator says, indeed, she's a respectable woman. The indeed seems like when someone repeats something in the hopes that by repeating it a bunch of times, it'll make it true when it isn't. And that's, that's kind of what I meant by insistent. Anyway, in terms of a writing technique, these one word positives can be a really coy, concise way to editorialize. And it, you know, it interrupts the flow of the sentence. So it stands out in that regard. Um, but it never says anything directly. And I think that's a pretty cool technique. All right, next up, I wanted to insert a little bit about Chopin's personal life as it relates to this piece. I'm always kind of torn about looking into a writer's backstory because on one hand, I want to know what they were like and what they were interested in, and I just want to learn about their writing habits and their ideas about writing. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to get into the pop Freudian psychology of analyzing every story as a reflection of some traumatic life event from the author. You know, they can just write something and let it stand for itself. But uh, some things stuck out to me uh, in this story. And uh, yeah, I want to talk to him, <laughs> talk about them. Okay, uh, so Chopin sets the story on a southern plantation and Gaston talks, her husband, talks about how nice their life is there. And I thought it was interesting to draw attention to this idyllic setup. Um, and I thought it was kind of subversive in its own way because having this scandalous story of high society or respectable people um, you know, kind of doing unrespectable things, or at least being tempted by them, kind of shows that they're susceptible to the same vices. And then also, Chopin, before her husband's untimely death, lived on a Louisiana sugar plantation, and she only started writing when she moved to St. Louis after his death. So here's some of that pop psychology stuff. The plantation life for Chopin would definitely be that idyllic setting um, with the memories of her life and her husband. No, I don't think, I won't go as far as to say this is autobiographical. I don't know that it isn't, but I don't know that it is either. And I'm not going to, so I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to limit that little, you know, background detail to the fact that I really think that this plantation life was intentionally idyllic. And then by making this, you know, respectable, this, you know, affluent society and this idyllic setting, and then having this 
kind of unrespectable storyline or potentially unrespectable storyline running under, it kind of subverts that society a little bit. Also, speaking of subversion, given the context, so this came out in 1894, it's really an early feminist piece of writing uh, because the main character is a woman. She's capable of her own ideas and emotions and attractions and thinks independently. And I... It all you know does all that in this story, and I read up about Chopin because she's a new author for me, and she's I, apparently often hailed as kind of that first modern feminist writer because her female characters were strong and developed, and they weren't just like these random, hollow extensions of their husband in some form or, or another. So I think that's pretty cool. Finally, I want to talk about the ending. So Broda's change of heart is kind of the punchline of the story, so to speak, uh, but it's also really, really ambiguous. So I figured we could flesh out the possibilities. First, Broto wants Gouvernail to come back. Uh, that's like the fourth different way I pronounce that. Anyway, whatever. She wants that guy to come back so that she can hook up with him. So obviously there's a lot of sexual tension under the oak tree. Broda is clearly attracted to Gouvernail and actually, this is kind of an aside, but uh, Chopin does a really excellent job of showing this attraction through uh, Baroda's actions throughout the story without directly saying it. And the great example is the bit where she leaves him alone and he's fine with it. And then she then starts accompanying him on these walks and talking to him. I think it's just a great way of showing this attraction without directly saying it. Anyway, she's attracted to him. And it seems like he's attracted to her too. Under the tree, uh, Gouvernail quotes uh, a poem from Walt Whitman and the part that he leaves off, the apostrophe, so to speak, is, quote, mad naked summer night, end quote. And that is quite sexy. Okay, so there's attraction that could, you know, very well could be mutual and Broda resists it because she's respectable. But then at the end, is she maybe succumbing to this? Let's say she's succumbing to that attraction. If so, what does the ending mean? Well, Baroda would be uh, a cheater, but also, uh, so, you know, there's that, but, you know, women having sexual attractions and things like that would be pretty risque for the time. Um, also, in doing that, she's then shedding her title as respectable, and given the title of the whole story, it would then mean that the story is about someone who loses their respectableness, though, if she keeps it a secret and she can maintain facade, you know, she keeps the affair a secret if she has one, um, then she could still be like labeled respectable. And then it would be an indication that these so-called respectable people have something to hide. Okay, what about the flip side? Let's say she wants to invite him. She's not going to hook up with him. She just, you know, her husband keeps asking and she's like, yeah, fine, let's do it. Um, okay, in this instance, she maintains her respectableness and those months where she refused to invite him or uh, refused to have him back could be her just getting over this crush. And now that she's invited, she's inviting him now because she can tolerate having him around. In this story, she would be doing what she said about she's, you know, kind of lose some battles need to be fought alone. And so she fought and she won. Um, <laughs> then the story is about resisting and overcoming temptation and maintaining this uh, respectableness. So the title then, you know, given the title of the story, the whole piece is then like a sort of manual for respectable women. But the fact of the matter is we don't know what her intention is. We can read it either way and we can ponder it and debate it. 
Um, and that's the ending that Chopin wanted. And I can kind of like see her kind of just smiling and shrugging her shoulders uh, when people ask like, hey, what happens at the end of that? And, uh, you know, so it's, it's up in the air. Um, now, according to my research, Chopin loved ambiguous endings. And this can be a really tricky writing technique because ambiguity can really easily be frustrating and dissatisfying. Now, I think this is a great ending. So I was thinking, why does this work when other times ambiguous endings don't? And I got a couple ideas. First, there are distinct finite possibilities. It's not so ambiguous that you have no idea what's going to happen. It's pretty much just one or the one or the way or the other. Um, Second, those possibilities are grounded in the text, so you can make a plausible argument for each one. Um, and kind of like I just did, kind of laying it out. Third, and this is the one I think is really cool, is that people can read the ending how they want, you know, and shaped by their own experiences or their own dispositions, they can see the story how they want, and they can end it kind of how they want. And I think that part is really cool because you really, as a reader, you really get to interact and be a part of the artwork. And yeah, I think it's fantastic. Uh, but again, very tricky to pull off, but very cool of Chopin. All right, thanks for tuning in. This week's episode, um, the music for this week's episode was The Louvre by Lord. I chose it because A, it's a great song, um, and B, Lord talks about punctuation, which is why Lord and I are actually soulmates, um, but also because I was debating this album earlier this week, and you can read it as a con concept album following the arc of a single night of partying, or as this kind of like love letter to her ex-boyfriend sort of love letter. Anyway, this quality, the kind of seeing different stories based on your perception, reminds me of the ending of Chopin's story, and that's why I chose it. Anyway, next week I'll be taking on Jules Verne's... Ah, Jules Verne's... Yeah, it's weird that his name, his first name is plural. Anyway, whatever. Jules Verne's story in the year 2889, which is available on AmericanLiterature.com and might be somewhere else on the internet. Who knows? Anyway, thanks again for listening, and here's some more Lord. Cause you feel it coasting on the